So as the kids settle down, I want to talk to you a little bit about how we do life here in Sterling. Um, it helps me um, if, if I ask a question, you can nod. Or if I say something and you're like, man, that's good. In this church, you can say, that's good. So there's no pressure to do that, but you're welcome to do it. You can say amen, right? I know it's a little bit outside of some traditions, but for us, it just helps me know that you're tracking with me and that you know where we're going. Amen? amen. And well done. With our remaining time, I want to share a brief message, actually using the same passage of Scripture that Keith Temple uh, used when he talked about our benevolence offering. And I'm really excited about that because he offered a lot of context that I don't have to go over now. Uh, The book of Matthew was written by a guy named Steve. Just kidding. It was written by a guy named Matthew. We believe that even though Matthew doesn't state his name in the letter, we we have strong evidence to believe that it was Matthew, including that all of the, the early church and the founders of the Christian faith all attribute that to Matthew. Matthew was one of the apostles. He walked with Jesus. He knew Jesus. And this was penned within Matthew's lifetime. So he walked with Jesus. And in his lifetime, he wrote this, this down to put down an account of everything that he learned as he walked with Jesus so that others could know the, what God's heart was in Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at um, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I'm actually going to read the whole passage. You can follow along with me on the screen if you'd like or on your smartphone or your any other kind of Bible you got. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests, the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means last among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them uh, what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. In going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Father, help us tonight. Open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to understand the purpose that you have for us in Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to make a couple brief observations, and then I want to close with uh, kind of the response that's before us tonight for every single one of us. Whether you've been walking with Jesus for a long time and you have a mature relationship with him, or you're here today because somebody dragged you and you really would rather be somewhere else, uh, we are all faced with a decision. And so I want to highlight the three options that I believe that we have. Last Sunday, I shared about how so many things had to converge at one time in order for Jesus to fulfill a certain number of prophecies that were made about him. Prophecies had been made about Jesus coming since since before the, the King David's reign. But at King David, a thousand years before Jesus was born, there was a promise made that there was going to be a king who came in David's line and David's heritage that was going to sit on the throne forever and ever. 
The problem is David's son Solomon had a thousand wives. Solomon, we know him as the wisest man that's ever been. I would call that into question, having a thousand wives. (laughs) Or because he's the wisest man, he was able to pull that off. Gentlemen, don't amen. There, that's, I was, that was a test. Your wife is amazing. Amen there. Your wife is amazing. There we go. I'm helping you out tonight. <laughs> all right, so, so Solomon had all, so anybody who was in the line of David could say that they came to fulfill the prophecy that was made about him, right? There's going to be this guy, he's going to be in your line. If I was in that line, I'd be like, yep, I'm him. And you won't know <laughs> until I die. So it's going to be a good life for me. But they didn't do that. So as the prophecies came, there was more and more information. And it's kind of like how you can find out exactly where you are based on the coordinates. Like if you're using cell phone towers, you can triangulate, triangulate somebody's location because you use this tower and this tower and this tower. And you're like, oh, the person's right there. That's what the prophecies that were made about Jesus do. It's kind of, it was kind of a general thing and another general thing and another general thing. And then there were these specific, specific prophecies made about him that, hey, he's going to be born in this way. He's going to be born of a virgin. That's a tough one to fake. He's going to be born of a virgin. And he's going to land here and he's going to land here. And he's going to be in this insignificant town in Bethlehem. They had forgotten about Bethlehem. Bethlehem was nothing to them. It was insignificant. And so it's triangulating in Jesus. God had to move all sorts of things around to get Jesus to the right place at the right time to fulfill all the prophecies that had been made about him. Among the things that had to land in the right place are the stars actually aligned in such a way in the sky that these astronomers from afar were able to go, oh, wait a second, look what these stars are doing. There's a prophecy about a king being born when the stars did this. Let's go to Jerusalem and find this guy. Right? But all the people who were closest to Jerusalem, they weren't looking at the stars because they got comfortable. Just hoping that someday, maybe it would happen, but probably not yet. These other wise men, these magi, were looking up at the stars and they were studying the stars. And what we think about the magi is that they were, or uh, this version called them wise men. We think that they were probably uh, advisors to a king. And they were skilled in mathematics. They were skilled in whatever physics they had. They were skilled in science. They were skilled in philosophy and wisdom. And they had come to such a place. The reason we believe that is because the gifts that they brought were worthy of a king. And gold is the least valuable of the gifts that they brought at that time. I know we say gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we're like, you lose the spices. Give me some money. But the money, it was in the frankincense and the myrrh. They were gifts that were fitting for a king, gifts to use to recognize royalty. When they, when they opened King Tut's tomb, the smell of frankincense was still strong on him because he was anointed in so much of these oils and so much of these spices and herbs and, and, and mixture. And so that was the real valuable part. But these wise men had the means to be able to bring it, which means they either were royalty themselves or had close ties to royalty and had been authentic, uh, like allowed to go and give these gifts on behalf of a foreign king. So the stars had to align. It also had, Jesus came through a line of broken people. He came through a line of, of, you know, his family tree puts the fun and dysfunction. They were, they were messed up people. You see that there was murder. You see that there was all sorts of evil things that we won't talk about with children in the room. Because I don't want that to be your Christmas Eve discussion. <laughs> but it's in there. And you can look and you can see 
Jesus came from that? And if nothing else, that brings me great encouragement that if God can use people that have messed up like that, certainly he can use people that have messed up like this. And not because I'm clean or on some moral high ground. I'm jacked up. You didn't expect that on Christmas Eve. I'm jacked up. I stand on no moral high ground. There's, there's no thing in me, even being a pastor, that credits me to God any more than anybody else who, who lives or who has ever lived or whoever will live. It's just I'm passionate about letting people know what this says. That's what makes me a pastor. And I'm getting better at it, right? If you've, if you've been at it, yeah, they, that's a big amen from some people that knew me as a teenager. He had to overcome an oppressive government. You know, Bethlehem wasn't this sweet little village that was, this was a little village that was being under the oppression of the Roman Empire. Caesar was calling a census. This is inconvenient. Hey, Joseph and Mary, you got to pack up at 10 months pregnant, hike 80 miles to Bethlehem, and we're going to count you. That's, that's, they didn't have an option in this. Our census, they come to our door and we can't stand them. Who are you? Why are you knocking on my door? But in order for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy that had been made 700 years before, God used Caesar to tell them, hey, you got to go to Bethlehem. I got a little slide about what that would be like. Are you able to show that one? He's like, yeah, um, I'm going to need you to go to Bethlehem. That'd be nice. And if you know the reference... You've got a pass too. You don't have it? All right. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Um, but this is what I want you to know about God using an oppressive Roman Empire to move Joseph and Mary to the place that they needed to be in order to fulfill what it is that God called them to do. It's this. That God loves you so much and cares so passionately about the plan that he has for you that he will move heaven and earth. He will move oppressive governments. He will move crazy family members. He will use your crazy boss. He will use your your obnoxious neighbor. He will use your kids. He will use car accidents. He will use cancer. He will use promotions. He will use tax refunds and tax not fund or like takes whatever that opposite is. God loves you so passionately and so deeply that he will use everything at his disposal to bring you to a place where you can understand what it is that he's created you to do. So there are three different options and and we see these different options. We see these different responses in the story. We see in this story that we, we, the characters kind of listed in this. We have, we have Jesus who's being identified as a king. We have, uh, we have King Herod who acknowledges that Jesus is a king. We have the wise men. We actually don't know how many. Three just made for a good song. And it the vibes with the hickory dickory dock kind of threes thing. And then we also see the response of, um, we see the response of Jerusalem. We see the response of the Pharisees and the scribes, kind of the religious people. And I want to highlight those three different responses and talk about how we can respond tonight to the fact that Jesus was born 2,000 years ago and came to bring a message of hope to us. The first one I want to highlight is King Herod's response. 
King Herod's response is, there's only one king and it's me. And he was furious. King Herod was so furious that he decided, ultimately, that he was actually going to commit infanticide and he was going to wipe out everybody under the age of two, which is why he wanted to know when the star appeared so he could wipe out any challenge to his throne. And for some of us, when we hear about Jesus, we're challenged because we want to be the one who's in charge. For some of us, when we hear, surrender your life to Jesus, or when we hear that Jesus has a plan for us, it's not something of peace, it's not something of of hope, it's not something of joy, it's something of frustration. And who is he to tell me what to do? I know that because I've been King Herod in my life, and I'm still King Herod sometimes. What do you mean you want me to give money? (laughs) What do you mean you want me to love my neighbor? What do you mean I'm supposed to forgive? What do you mean? I'm the king of this life is the response that rises up in my soul. That was the response of King Herod. There's one king and I'm it and I'm gonna make sure that nobody can challenge my throne. He didn't doubt that there was a king. They had the prophecies. They didn't doubt that he had been born. The Magi had come to confirm something that everybody near him had missed. And so then he calls everybody into him. He calls the Pharisees and the scribes. It says Jerusalem was scared because if there's two kings at the same time, something's about to get upended, right? Like you don't have two kings living at the same time for the same people at the same place. It doesn't end well for anybody. It doesn't end well for the kings. It doesn't end well for the people in the city. It doesn't end well for the people in the county. It doesn't end well for anybody. And so everybody is terrified and frustrated and angry about this announcement about a king being born in Bethlehem. Probably even more angry because it fulfilled something. And so he called the people in and he said, where was this child born? And their response is interesting. They're like, oh, that's in Bethlehem. And that was it. They even quoted the prophet. They said, oh, 700 years ago, it was promised that this child was going to be born in Bethlehem. So let's just let that happen. Can we go home and eat? I'm kind of busy. The second response that we see is indifference. What's interesting is the indifferent response came from the people who should have been the most passionately excited. The indifferent response to the presence of of their king was by the people who were to worship him. And so they had this indifferent response, kind of like, yeah, God's over there. And sometimes when we've known God a little bit or we have a sense of spirituality or something else, it's like, oh yeah, God's over there in that church. God's over there in that Bible study. God's over there in that Bible. God's over there in those people. Oh, that person over there knows God. But, but we, we, we stay indifferent to it and we don't actually ever move to engage it. I'd like to say that if I found out that Jesus was just down the street, I'd get pretty amped up and I'd chase after him. But the truth is, I get busy. And sometimes even I have an indifferent response to the revelation of Jesus being the king of my life and being, being accessible and attainable and even close. He had come so close and yet they were still so indifferent to his presence. Now, there are a couple of different reasons that we can be indifferent and I want to highlight a few of those and then touch on this last response. Maybe they were distracted and busy. They were caught up in their routines. We got to guard our hearts against this kind of busyness. I know 
It's next to impossible in Northern Virginia to guard your heart from busy. But the things that are important in God are not less important when things get busy. It becomes more important. To know Jesus is not less important when things are hard at work. It's more important. To live a life that's surrendered to God in the midst of a marriage struggle or a parenting struggle or a financial struggle isn't less important. It becomes more important. And so we need to guard our hearts against that kind of busyness. Is pastor saying that I'm supposed to come to church all the time? No. But I will say that as we pursue Jesus, going to church kind of follows. Because I want to be with the other people who are following Jesus. I want to be around the people who are following Jesus. My family is white. Back out your attention. Our family devotions are great, and I love it. And we, we read the Jesus Storybook Bible, and we act things out. But I'm missing something because I'm, I'm, I'm missing something of the, the manifold or the multicolored, the, the expressed beauty of God when I'm just with people who are like me, who think like me, and I can tell them what to do. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your quiet time or, you know, family, it's like I'm in charge. Children. I don't like what you're saying. Go to bed. I can't tell Antoine to go to bed. <laughs> I can't tell Oshima to go to go to bed. He'll probably tell me to go to bed. Tony's telling me how I got to eat. You got to eat a little bit of chicken and something like vegetables. Can they be fried? No. Because he hates people. Tony does. No, I'm just kidding. He hates good food. No, I'm just kidding. He doesn't hate that either. He actually takes care of his body. Maybe their hearts were sick with disappointment. Maybe it wasn't about busyness. Maybe it was about disappointment. All these prophecies had been made and Jesus didn't answer it so far. People said, forgive. And you forgave and the person's still being a jerk. People said, humble yourself in your workplace and God will exalt you. God will pick you up. God will promote you. And you haven't been promoted. You've only been demoted. You turn the other cheek and they slap that. And you turn it again and they slap it again. And you found yourself brokenhearted or, or heart sick because God hasn't done what you expected him to do based on what you thought you were supposed to do. And I understand that too. I've been there. Have you ever prayed for something and seen God not answer that question? Maybe even do the exact opposite of what you prayed for. You ever been trying to pray and it just feels like your, your prayers hit the ceiling and there's nothing actually alive or active or caring on the other side of the ceiling to do anything about it? And you're like, I'd pray, but I'm really just talking to myself. If you felt that way, that's the whole reason that Jesus came down to earth to be among us. Because we spend our whole life striving to be good enough so that we could be acceptable to God, but he came down to make us acceptable to God. I do want to say that sometimes there's delay and sometimes the answer is no with these prayers. And, and I wish I had a real pretty answer for you about why God allows that to happen. I don't have an emotionally satisfying answer for that. There is no emotionally satisfying answer for why evil exists in the world. There is no emotionally satisfying answer for why God allows tough, tough 
circumstances and difficulty to come to us when we've done everything that we can do. Well, I've even prayed to you, God. I've even gone to church for you. I even served for you. I gave during that offering. Why am I broke? There's no emotionally satisfying answer to any of these questions. But the reality is that God, as I said before, will use everything at his disposal to bring you to a place so that you can worship him and him alone. And this life is a breath that's setting up a wonderful, joyful, hopeful eternity. The Jesus that we know and see in this life as we read the Bible and even as I talk to him and we tell the kids stories and we and remember who he is historically and archaeologically as we know Jesus existed as a man, as we know we've got so much evidence about him dying and raising from the dead just because of what the Romans do when they kill people and guard their tombs. We've got tons of evidence about this. It's not a question of whether or not he existed. It's a, whether, it's a question of whether or not we're willing to trust him with our lives. They were indifferent. Were they angry, heartbroken, hurt, lonely, sad? I don't know. But I know some of us have been in those shoes before. Some of us will be in those shoes again. I want to tell you to hold on. Hang on. Don't let this temporary affliction or discomfort or disappointment keep you from the hands of a loving God who wants to lavish hope, joy, peace, mercy, health, healing, wholeness on you. I can't promise you a new car. We're not that kind of church. I kind of wish we were. Be easy to get people to come in. Like, love Jesus, get a car. You know, like, like Oprah, you know, a car for you, a car for you. We've got battery-operated candles. And you're welcome to take that home with you if you'd like. Take that for prosperity gospel, JC. (laughs) But what I can promise you is that God will speak to you. What I can promise you is that he'll wipe away every sin. What I can promise you is that he'll give you a purpose and he'll give you a family. What I can promise you is that he will secure eternity for you because of what he did while he was on this earth. The last response we see in the Magi And the wise men, we see his response, and that was to worship. Keith already articulated this really, really well, but what's funny about the wise men is they're the ones that don't belong in this story. The wise men are the only ones that don't belong. Everybody else are the people who were living in the right place, doing the right things, saying the right stuff. It's all the church people. And here come these pagan priests. The reason they knew what was happening is probably because they were worshiping the stars. And so when they showed up on the scene, not only were they inquiring and telling everybody, hey, this is what's happening, but it was an open rebuke to the court. Hey, you you missed it. The king you've been hoping for for thousands of years is here. And um, where's the party? Uh, We didn't even realize that it happened. The people who didn't belong in the stories are the one the story are the ones who came to worship. They were compelled to take a long journey to seek out this king. They'd humble themselves by laying down before him and giving him gifts of great value. I do want to let you know that God is not after your wallet. He's after your worship. 
It's just sometimes your wallet tells you what you're worshiping. Your bank statement and your calendar will tell you what your priorities are. And it's too honest sometimes. For a while, I worshiped Taco Bell. And I wouldn't have admitted it, but the bank statement didn't lie. I went to Taco Bell three times in the same day. Eight times this month? Yeah. (laughs) Bank statement's brutal. Not only was God and Jesus Christ pleased to receive worship from these pagans, pleased to receive worship from people who had no business being there, but God was pleased to have it inscribed in his text to stand as a model for all of us to follow in our worship. So if you're here tonight and you thought, man, I don't belong here. I'm not powerful enough. I'm not religious enough. I'm not clean enough. I've got these problems. I've got this fight. I fought with my wife on the way here. Not me, personally. I'm saying if you said that. (laughs) We drove separately. (laughs) If that's you tonight and you feel somehow excluded from the purposes of God and you're like, "That's that's for people who haven't made mistakes. I'll promise you that this is the only place for people with mistakes. I love what becoming part of a Christian church or in Christian family means. It's not like this everywhere, and for that I'm sorry. But it's like the only place where you got to stand up and say, I'm jacked up, and I can't fix myself, but Jesus has forgiven me of everything that I've done. And that, God, that gives me so much hope. That gives me so much joy. And so this is the hope of Christmas. Not that Jesus came in the form of a baby and laid in a manger around some stinky animals and they did something extraordinary. The hope in the gospel, the hope in Jesus is everything that he did in his life so that he lived the perfect life that we couldn't live for ourselves. And he bore the weight of the sin that we can't bear for ourselves. But because Jesus had never sinned, death had no power over him and he rose from the dead. And he didn't just raise from the dead and say, hey, check it later. I rose from the dead. Keep suffering. He said, I've risen from the dead and I will forgive everybody their sins if they would surrender their life to me. What a beautiful celebration. What a beautiful celebration. Our hope isn't in something that just happened as a historical event. Our hope is in what God has done and what he has promised to do. And our confidence is that everything that he said he would do, he has done. And that God remains faithful even when we're faithless because he cannot deny himself. The lack of faith of the religious people, the lack of faith of Jerusalem, the lack of everybody's faith, Herod's hostility, everybody's ambivalence or indifference to his birth didn't keep him from doing what he said he was going to do, when he said he was going to do it, how he said he was going to do it for the purpose that he said he was going to do it. God wants to do extraordinary things in and through your life. But to even begin to taste of those things you need to first choose to believe that not, not only is he a historical figure, 
Not only did he once live, not only did he once die, not only did he once say that he was raised from the dead and actually do it, but I'm willing to trust him with my life. I'm willing to surrender to him. I'm willing to follow him. And there is no better time than Christmas. There is no better time than right now to make that decision. And so if you could join me by bowing your heads.